Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, my name is John Kennedy, and I'm very pleased to say that Dave McLean of Django Django and Neil Comer, the producer, are here together to talk about Django Django's second album, Born Under Saturn. Django Django formed in Dalston, London at the end of 2008, although the group's roots stem from their time at Edinburgh College of Art a decade earlier. The band released their self-titled debut album in January 2012, combining 80s pop rhythms with 60s Beach Boys-style vocal harmonies. It was a critical hit and went on to be a Mercury Prize nominee. In May 2015, they delivered their second album, Born Under Saturn. Neil Comer is a producer and mix engineer. After initially cutting his teeth at Olympic Studios, he soon began training under multi-award winning mixer Chenzo Townsend, working on albums for Florence and the Machine, Block Party and U2. Neil has recently been producing with the likes of Declan McKenna, Marlian rock band Songhoi Blues, as well as continuing his collaborations with MIA. Dave and Neil are here together at Iguana Studios to talk about Django Django's second album, Born Under Saturn. I guess I, we should start at the beginning, because uh, in my mind, uh, the wonders of Django Django are created in a bedroom somewhere with wires and sellotape, holding it all together um, and and creating this amazing magic that, that, that you have created over two albums, Dave. But I mean, it, it might have started a bit like that, but I suspect with the second record and bringing in Neil, that wasn't how it happened. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. It was very much the first record was very much a bedroom record you know it came out of working in my bedroom you know as a teenager with four tracks and trying to make sampled loops from records and bits of sellotape to make them skip and make a beat you know just very very basic before people had pcs or whatever in their in their homes and then gradually just started getting into computers and trying to take advantage and and you know build up layers and layers of sound and, and the whole, the whole first album was really just experimenting with the possibilities of DIY, you know, making a record yourself. But with that comes frustrations, you know, instead of using a drum kit, it was kind of, we had one drum, like a floor tom and we'd pitch it up and down and try and compress it for a kick drum. And cause we we're in this kind of shared flat and there was no way of making playing drums or we didn't, you know, there was just wasn't that possibility. So I guess when we came to album two, we were kind of like, oh, wow, imagine a properly mic'd up <laughs> a drum kit or an amped guitar, you know, that all that was kind of new to us, which sounds weird, but... Um, which is interesting because the first album was really successful. You got nominated for the Mercury Prize. Yeah. You got to tour the world and got a lot of acclaim and uh, plaudits and won lots mm. of fans as well Yeah, with which, that approach. But it sounds like a pretty nightmarish approach in terms of practicality. Uh, nightmarish, but fun. I mean, I was always into music concrete and kind of abstract sound recordings and wondering how people... You know, that and the whole dance music sensibility of guys making hip hop or jungle or techno in their bedrooms, you know. Uh, so, you know, I d it didn't seem weird to me or 
or frustrating mostly it just seemed like a laugh you know and I, I had no idea we'd get a record deal never mind a a tour and a Mercury nomination so there was a lot of kind of just playing catch up and like oh no this is happening we need to you know catch up with ourselves which is I guess what we tried to do on the second album was just bring it forward a bit mm. you know so who is the band? Um, but, I mean, you're here representing the yeah, band today. I guess I'm producer and drummer and then Vinny's sort of main songwriter and singer and then Tommy Grace is the sort of synth master <laughs> keys guy and then Jim on bass. And, you know, the, the, it wasn't a band when we started out. It was a bedroom project of me making beats for Vinny's songs, you know, and then it gradually, as I say, kind of, we had to gig and tour and it became a band. And so um, when you create a, a record, or I guess because we're talking about Born Under Saturn, when you approached this record and these songs, did you uh, had you written all the songs and demoed them all before you turned to Neil? Or, or did he come in as part of the, the process of, of creating Born Under Saturn? I think we played you some demos, did yeah, we? Yeah, there was definitely some demos. I mean, I came on board basically because you guys wanted to do some proper live recording. Mm. And so I came in to engineer originally and uh, we, we just, you guys wanted to go to a big studio and record and you played me. You had done a lot of work on the, the beats and the background, but the vocals, most of the vocals weren't written, I'd say, certainly right. lyrics and stuff. So it's quite interesting with the demos. In some ways they seem really fully formed, but in other ways they're missing, which is quite different to a lot of bands, I guess. Yeah, I guess our way of working is a bit weird. And then even as you say, you know, we were talking about the bedroom recording, even when we went to this massive farm steading studio, you know, with all the big, huge live rooms and stuff, we kind of retreated into a little corner and <laughs> sort of made a bedroom. And, so, uh, so where did you go then? Uh, Angelic, which is run by um, the keys player from Jamiroquai, it's his place. Yeah, it was residential. So we went and stayed for a couple of weeks at a time and mm. did sort of a few stints down there. But yeah, it's quite easy to get into the, the dinners and the wine and not, yeah. not get quite as much done. It's kind of quite to. a decadent place. I mean, we did do a lot of work, obviously, but we, we kind of took full advantage of the surroundings <laughs> as well. That's yeah. interesting. And, and you say you retreated into a corner to um, kind of squirrel away yeah, and work on yeah, things yeah. instead of using, presumably you had a drum kit room uh, set yeah. up ready for you to go and and whack yeah i was terrified yeah. of it right really <laughs> neil would always try and get me to go in there and play drums and i'd be like well i could just hit the snare and sample it, and <laughs> loop it. <laughs> but it's interesting because um i would have thought after uh, the first album and the success and the tours that resulted because of that you know you became a fully functioning live band yeah. who would be getting up on stage and all working together and i thought yeah. approaching a second album having had that experience you might want to tap into that yeah we did but it, it, I guess it was kind of just um, reverting back to what you're comfortable with in a way. And I guess I never wanted to be a band that would just mic up a, you know, there's bands that just smash out a record in a week. But we're much more uh, kind of just, we just want to tinker around more. We just want to get under the bonnet and have a tinkle. Yeah, I'd say it's <laughs> and, more uh, just... Yeah, you guys couldn't help yourself, yeah, really. Yeah. And there were songs where we did, like, you guys would just go in and do, like, a 20-minute jam straight to tape, and then we'd take bits of that afterwards mm. and be like, oh, this is a good starting point. 
and that's really cool it's like oh what if we just move this bit here and then you would have some ideas and go and play some percussion and then maybe redo a bit of drums and before you know it you've accidentally built a whole new track yeah uh, with loads of weird noises and i think it's the fun of building it up i get into it's the process of it that really excites me i think mm. but you did do the jamming thing so you did kind of play did, in a room together yeah, we did bits of that but it's weird I mean, we don't ever set up and play the song. We didn't set up and play a song beginning to end much. No, no, very rarely. It was always bits. It was like jam and loop it and then jam on top and then loop that and that kind of thing. Interesting. I think we should have hear a burst of music because the interesting thing is that you unite it all when you come up with a finished product and it sounds like it could be a band just hammering it out in, yeah. in one go. And, and Shake and Tremble is a, a really good example of that. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, that could be a band playing on the street corner. But I can picture when I listen to Shake and Tremble, Django Django doing a kind of live in the street kind of thing, yeah, yeah. Um, especially yeah. with that track, you know. And, and it's interesting because there's a raw rockabilly element that Vinnie brings in yeah. to the equation. And yet there's all this other stuff going on as well. And the whole creates a, a whole new music, really. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that to me sounds like, I don't know if I'm right, but just some mics in a room and we were just trying to get to grips with the groove a bit of it pretty much i mean that was after our very first session going to the big studio that's basically as we took it home and started to dissect stuff and go through stuff so it's pretty much your starting rock outs yeah but again that's in terms of the way you guys write and put stuff together it's that thing of in some ways it seems so similar to the end product but like still at that point there wasn't wasn't any lyrics, I don't think. But yeah, that was pretty raw at the beginning of the yeah of the process. Sounds great. I mean, you must yeah. like thumping away on a drum kit, though. Dave. I do. Yeah, uh, my attention span's terrible, so <laughs> I'll do it for a bit, and then I want to jump on a synth, and then right. You know, I'm not. I'm a bit of a reluctant drummer, but you know, I was also my background. There's a lot of hip hop DJing and things like that, so drumming and beats were always important. And I remember when I f- first as a young teenager having a drum kit i just wanted to drum and loop it and that was my thing i wanted to learn you know beastie boys you know find out what breaks they used and copy them and so that was always my thing rather than you know wanting to and even you know and then i when i started to realize that 
because I was a, a massive fan of the Beatles and remember realizing, like trying to work out how um, Ringo Starr did that extended break on Strawberry Fields, you know, that's on the extended edition. And then working out, wow, they just overdubbed. You know, it's like tape loops. It was like the beginning of sampling in mm, hip hop, mm. these kind of tape loops. So that was always my thing more than just, okay, I'm, I'm a drummer, I'm going to drum. Does the live set present a, a problem then for you? I mean, in that you think, pro- oh, well, no. A little bit. I mean, I do get halfway through a tour, I'm like, oh, God, drumming again. <laughs> uh, but it can be enjoyable. It's also knackering being mm. a drummer. Like, I never realised till the first tour that you kind of have to get fit a little bit. It's very <laughs> physical. Yeah, cowbells are good because you just whack them. Yeah. <laughs> you can hold a bottle with the other hand exactly yeah, yeah. well drinking and drumming's i find important i remember trying that once and just like because i've got a click track firing in my ears a lot so it's a lot about trying to keep in time and if you've had a couple of drinks you, you think you're in time but everyone's looking at you like what are you doing <laughs> so the songs do they begin in that way with the essence of shake and tremble that we just heard you know the, the band playing together and then then you you actually seem to take that apart and work out which bits you like and then Vinny goes away and starts thinking about a kind of vocal melody or something like yeah, that yeah he'll start to hum over the top and and a few words will pop out and then yeah i think it, it's also you you guys seem to have two different ways i think if it's started more with you dave it's more a beat and it, you know it's more been built in a you know in more of a computer setting i guess or if it's the more rockabilly things is much more well Vin- uh, yeah the, the guy's guitar playing and uh um and a, a jam session which is then taken and began to be chopped and morphed mm. into other things but it, it's almost like a, a rhythmic sensibility that django django have in terms of a, a, a sound and listening to the album again um before coming here um it kind of reminded me that in a in a way in, in the same way that Tony Allen creates a sound for Fela Kuti, you, you've kind of created a, a rhythmic sensibility for Django Django and, and it really glues it all together. And it's almost as if you've created this new sound that is Django Django, which I find quite interesting. I mean, it is the whole combination of different elements that you've brought together, um, but it is very much based on this this bed of, of rhythm, I think. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I... I always remember that story about how John Lennon took one of his records into his manager's and record label, and it was uh, one of his and then a, on a Motown record. And he was like, you know, what are we doing? This is how I want the band to sound. And it, that was the beginning of dance music, really, the backbeat being the... I mean, they did it in a rock and roll way, but this was the beginnings of black music, I guess, infiltrating everything we now take for granted about rhythm. You know, that was so important for me not to you know, get lost in this folky, dreamy world. It had to have that backbeat and that kind of groove. Yeah, there was definitely a few moments where we were sort of working with these rockabilly grooves and then you'd be like, this is what it's got to sound like and put on a massive hip-hop record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. But I guess the other um, identifiable aspect of Django Django sound is that vocal sound as well, married to this rhythmic sensibility because um, while Vinny sings, but it's, it's kind of multi-tracked, is it? Or it, it sounds like group harmony know and and how do you work that up so we we've heard the raw essence of of shake and tremble um as it kind of began and then all these other bits get added at some point mm. and how does that happen and and is it who's in control of achieving that sound i mean you still walking with vinnie 
through this as as he comes up with those parts or yeah definitely i mean going back to the beatles again i just wanted to sound like the beatles mm. and do that kind of panning mm. you know i'd heard somewhere that they panned the vocals hard left and right so that was what i did and um again trial and error you know and the first album was terrible like one we had one microphone that i bought in this shop in dundee that was really awful and, yeah and so you layer it up is, yeah. that, is, is that something that neil would work on as well you did a lot or? of vocal yeah we did me. i mean towards the end of the record as as time was running out we basically ended up having two studios running uh just to you you were back in your little room in london um and we hired a room literally next door pretty much and so i would do a lot of vocals and things with uh well with all the boys because they're, they're you know um all of them sing tommy and jim as well and then you'd basically fire stuff across to you and you'd do some work on it and fire stuff back and we were just running two simultaneously but with the vocals that was like for me that was really one of the things that was, is so important from your first record and the way you do things is basically keeping it the same because when we first started doing vocals we we got them really tight and we spent a long time having these super tight thick vocals maybe just double tracked and it just didn't sound right it just didn't sound like mm. Django Django basically and so we sort of went back and I sort of said well what did you do on the first record and we ended up doing you know at least four layers of every vocal and we would record them through guitar pedals and so everything was you know literally just essentially jammed through a you know through a pedal board with sort of some phaser maybe and a bit of delay and and building up in a in a slightly psychedelic way i guess that's mm. the, you know vocally um well i think it is the thing that ties it all together you know and in that way that the the, the beach boys had where across the albums brian wilson would experiment with all these different crazy ideas but the, the vocal harmonies were the thing that tied it together and that's something that's probably important for us to make the the sounds coherent you know yeah do, do you have any examples of how the vocal layering works so it would well it would start as all vocalists does just with one vocal and then you double and then you start to add harmonies and then jim was also singing in adoration and then he would sing harmonies as well but yeah on each one there's at least at least sort of 10 tracks of vocals i would say to create that sounds it sound. sounds great though and how many times would you re-sing would they re-sing a part um or would you just literally just double it up oh no we, i no. mean it they've all been it's sung so, every yeah. single yeah, time so, yeah, yeah so you sing, keep singing them separately so that the i guess the idea is that the um you get a weird effect where some vocal notes are phasing and then some are clashing and some are cancelling each other out so it ends up sounding quite rich and dynamic mm. and it was always difficult because yeah. yeah. <laughs> you guys like everybody writes until the very end like yourself Vinny and, and Jim and Tommy and so even right at the last very last knockings of the recordings a verse would get changed or just three words in a verse would get changed and you'd be like oh, 
<laughs> got to redo 22 tracks of vocals now to, yeah. to change those two words. But, <laughs> it's for the greater good now. But it had to be done. It was good. Yeah. I'm definitely glad we did it. I mean, it does but. sound magical hearing just the vocals like that and hearing the, the way that they get layered up. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, I remember first getting Vinnie around to the flat, you know, the first time we did anything and layering up for sounds, you know, and harmonies and just being so excited about harmonies and the possibilities of them and and then getting into, as Neil says, like trying him singing through a guitar pedal or, you know, you can have a lot of fun doing it. You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favourite features within Tapeit Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tapeit sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favour. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give tape it a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off tape it pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. Looking at one of the other songs on the album, High Moon, which is quite a contrast to Shake and Tremble. Um, how did this one work? Uh, this came out of a sort of a, a, a little dancehall loop and a, and a harpsichord, which was... I know I'll start in yes. <laughs> but uh again, just totally accidental something strange about a harpsichord and a and a dancehall groove that I, I I don't know how we managed to get a song out of it, but it evolved into something that even when I listen to it now I'm not quite sure what on earth it is. <laughs> <laughs> and the harpsichord that you were talking about now, how did you create this harpsichord? Because you didn't have a harpsichord. No, well I, I was doing music for a Shakespeare company, uh, running alongside doing this album for a, a play called The White Devil. And it was all very kind of gothic sounds that we were trying to come up with. And I actually stuck um, pins into the, all the hammers of the piano to get a harpsichord sound and ruined the piano. And then realised that actually Shakespeare company had this whole bank of prepared piano sounds <laughs> of all the original kind of samples so kind of wrecked the piano when i didn't need to but it it is it it, it, 
as soon as you put a bit of metal on the hammers, you know, it really just transforms the the sound of it into that harpsichord sound and that's what we, we did. I think in the end we actually used, you get great digital sounds of harpsichords as well, so kind of layered up, you know, the different ways yeah. of getting the, the sound, but... We did some piano with, we'd put two P pieces on the, well, we put some on the piano and then played it, so they were bouncing on the strings, so yeah. we put it between the strings and the head, so get a, a clicky sound, a kick <laughs> drum. I know yeah, they, they wouldn't tumble out of the, the piano, or they'd... Fair bit, yeah, yeah, it was like, fairly... Uh, Adding another layer of sound. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh no, and there's a coin spinning underneath the piano just yeah. when we're playing this really well. Yeah, you'd end up with three people holding bits of it in place. <laughs> but that was the great go. thing. I guess the thing I took away from that album most was that the, the sound of a room, a big room, you know, just we did do things like just drop keys on the ground and record yes. it through a big reverb, a great mic and a reverb pedal, and you'd just be like, wow, you know, it's something that I hadn't appreciated good microphones till we went to Angelic and then I was like wow this is why people use expensive mics and not 50 quid ones from yeah and just rooms having air around them as well I think it's like to be able to have a mic back you know when you do just drop keys on the floor but you're in a huge room and you can take that air and then as you process it you can really compress that and you can hear the air for want of a better word and then you take that and put it through a dub delay and a reverb and a pitch shifter, and you got yourself a kit drum. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. <laughs> and do you have any of these examples of the the wackier things that you were recording? This is. So these are some of the tape delays we were using. So that's you know that's just Vinny uh, singing. But when we got carried away, um, goes on for days. Is that we think that was boing boing? This yeah. one. That sounds ping pong ballish to me. Yeah. So it's called rim shot. So I guess at some point it was something to do with the rim of a drum. I think it's actually probably the rim of the snare drum being right. hit, but just straight into a delay rather than having any of the original sound. And it's an old knacker tape delay that can't cope with the the attack of a snare drum. So it just goes, yeah. And that is basically all it can manage because of technology, but... It gives a cool sound we can, yeah. we can use. I think that was one of yours, Dave. Sounds like a submarine. It does. Yeah. Sonar snare, that's called. This uh, was definitely one that was worked on for a long time and had uh, a lot of trial and error and different combinations. And is, Are you able to give us an example of, of the essence? So this is uh, the earliest demo I've got of it. Yeah, again, at the beginning of our recording process. Yeah, so that was this kind of basic dance hall groove. Yeah. And they're skipping along a bit. Mm. And they'll be synth over the top. More dubby sounds.
this is like the real early bits of finding the melody where they're just literally trying a few bits out. And, and now we'll just have a quick listen to the to the real thing, the finished thing, and you'll see just the contrast and and change within that as well. So this is uh, the the polished up album ready version of High Moon. And it's really, it's really interesting. I mean, how much how much fun must it be just adding dub effects to little bits Everything. of it? I mean, it, it, yeah. I mean, you could do that for hours and hours, and I suspect that's exactly what you do. Yeah, we did a lot. I'd, I've always wanted to do that, just have a whole record of ours put on a mixing desk and then the whole album just dubbed out. But... Um, yeah, we did play know, with the idea a little bit. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely times we had three or four different tape delays and reverb set up and tape delays going into reverbs going into like h3000 which is like an old pitch shifting unit which is used a lot in studios and yeah. just much more experimental i guess you know yeah. don't really know what the sound's going to be when it comes out mm. and in you contrast know? to say working with mia which i assume is is a process that is is quite similar to what we've been talking about but you did have a band with you with Django Django, had four people who could assemble themselves in the, the room and and bash out the song if necessary so were there times when you you kind of thought right enough faffing about let's just play the song and and see how we think of it then oh yes I mean, definitely i mean that was, was quite a lot of that happened really i mean it was interesting it was always finding the balance between trying to have that live feel to things and also just respecting what what you guys are as a band really and what that needs to be and it, i mean that's and that drink the... red wine and play table tennis <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> balance. but, but yeah. you do achieve that um that sound you know when you listen to django django records it does sound like a band playing together yeah um but obviously you know you've you've kind of assembled it in a in a different way i think so yeah and that that just comes back i guess to having the wanting to have the fun of making it like that I'd feel a bit cheated if we just went in and recorded it as a band. It'd be like, oh, is that it? You know? Yeah, it wasn't so much intentional. I mean, there were tracks that were recorded as a band and then it was sort of like, right, cool, that's that. And then it's like, oh, actually, we'll just try changing this and then try changing that. And then it's like, all right, maybe we'll try the bass. It's like, oh, well, maybe the, if the drums were slightly different now because of what we've changed here. Yeah. And then before you know it, you have kind of relooked at everything in a different way. The problem then is that when you get you when you go out to play it live, you have to reverse engineer it and work out how you're going to play it live. Uh, and in an ideal world, you'd do that and then record, you know. And we did that with some of the sessions. We deconstructed it, learned to play it well live, and then recorded it. 
and that's the ideal thing because you've kind of got best of both worlds but that would just take <laughs> you know it'd take 10 years to make a record and we already take too long so. <laughs> So, I mean, First Light was another song that you suggested we have a look at. I mean, that sounds like a, a rocker to, to me. Yes. But it yeah. did. am I right in thinking that that's how it might have started? or, or... It, Well, it was, really. I mean, I'd say that was the song close, you know, that's the one that's changed the least over the whole time, actually. And that was the first, definitely the first one we, we got in the studio, the first one, everyone, that moment, sort of a weekend where you're like, oh, yeah, this is it. This is the one. It feels really good. And... And everyone was really happy, and it hasn't changed a huge amount since, actually. And that was it was pretty live. You guys were playing it, I think, yeah. I think with a drum machine as well. Was it mm -hmm. a, a Lin drum was running with it? Yeah, I think. a drum machine and then the live snare. Yeah. Um, but uh, I can play you a bit of the demo mm. now. So that's the demo. Yeah. Yeah, that well that was in our first week of recording. So right. we had, we had started the process. So it was that was recorded in Angelic. Yes. Yeah. 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 But it's the kind of rough of what you were trying to get towards, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean it sounds very fully formed, doesn't it? Um, yeah, as I say, I think that was the one that really just came together quicker than than the rest and I mean you guys had really finished it as well. The the lyrics were done, the mm. you know, the melodies were done. So we could go quite quickly with it. And that, I mean, for, I think for me, that was the benchmark of the album. You know, it's like, cool, we've, we found something. But that was one of the more fully formed songs that you went in with. So I guess a naturally good place to start. Yeah, but yeah. A false sense of what would it would take because yeah, it was already halfway there, you know. Yeah, yeah. But I guess it was just because a lot of it was still being written as well. It was... Uh, I guess half written in the studio, really, the record. Yeah, Vinny and Jim would be off writing lyrics in one room and we'd be doing synths in another and it was a bit like a little factory, you know, people just busying away, getting bits and bobs done, you know. But then nobody had kind of told us, well, maybe you should write the record before you go to an expensive <laughs> studio and spit when you're on the clock. Right, so the, the lessons learned from this experience would be the next Django Django record you'd get more done beforehand a bit but it seems yeah. to me that having neil there and being able to use neil's expertise 
is important too. I mean, it takes knowledge to, you know, it's accumulated knowledge to know how to do these things. And with us, it's just complete guesswork and trial and error and can take forever. And it's great to have somebody that just knows how to work a desk or a patch bay. It's just invaluable, really. It was interesting with things on the record as well, where I think you guys, because you hadn't really recorded a big studio before, there was things you felt you should get from it, which maybe weren't possible to get. And like there was a few things doing the guitars on the record where you guys wanted it a bit more up front. It's like, no, it needs to be really spiking up front, more like the first record. And it's like, well, that's because you get that by jamming the computer, the, the guitar straight into a computer and that's why it sounds so yeah. fierce and in your face. And actually when you put it through an amp and it, it sounds beautiful, but it does naturally mellow it out and you lose some of that and us finding that balance. And we ended up, I mean, lots of the guitars were just jammed into the desk straight off the pedal board to avoid what the amp was doing to help recreate what you were doing on the first record. Because yeah. again, that's your guys. That's interesting sound. because you assume with some of those guitar lines that, you know, that twanginess and that kind of old fashioned sound, you know, that we think of the 60s and the 50s and, and Rockabilly and Dwayne Eddy and, and those kind of things. But, um, and you think at that point, the technology that allowed Link Ray to do what he did was, yeah. was a technology. It was, you know, using yeah. an amplifier in a certain way. And, you know, but you're just thinking, well, we can bypass that. Yeah, I mean, I, it goes back to just not even having an amp in the flat. It's not just being like, oh, I don't know, just plug it into the back of the computer and then fill it with reverb. But yeah, all these things take took a while to learn, like how Link Ray got that sound. Or um, I remember realizing that um, it's probably you, Neil, that told us that Led Zeppelin, to get a huge guitar sound, used tiny amps driven really hard. And, you know, all these things, you just think, wow, you just assume Led Zeppelin had a wall of amps and they probably did, but they were just for show. And actually the behind the scenes that were driving this small amp that actually gives it a bigger sound when it's mic'd up correctly and stuff yeah. like that. I just didn't even, it was just such a learning curve going to that studio and re- and, and talking about amps. And, and there, there's so many things in old recordings where, People did it, like, we, we love those recordings now, and so we we're always trying to replicate it, but actually they didn't want to do things that way. And, like, with the reason Motown records are full of tambourine is because they couldn't get any high end on the tape machine. So at the end of it, it's just like, we'll stick a tambourine on. So at least there's a little bit of top end in the records, otherwise it sounds dull. And yeah, there was, that, there was that story you probably said as well, that in Motown they would always get the secretary in a clap because she this girl didn't have much rhythm but they wanted that they wanted the, the slightly wonky off claps every so often you know that things like that that just yeah. make a sound and make a record sound great it's the little weird happy accidents um and then i remember we would like to get a really good clap sound we would like put our hands in buckets of water get your hands soaking wet and then it gives a huge slap when you clap your hands and yeah it was great we i mean we ended up making almost banks of samples and yeah. things like that where we do the claps and you know dropping things through big reverbs and hitting things and we put parach- parachutes up in the live room to have dead areas and liver areas but, yeah. fascinating it's been absolutely fascinating hearing this and then just hearing these these little uh snippets of of what must have been quite a gargantuan task putting this record together but sounding absolutely amazing and uh, it seems that the possibilities are are so open in in where you take it next for the yeah. future as well no definitely um, yeah. yeah it's been good hope it's not been too 
boring. No, but not well. We can, we can no. get quite excited about yeah. the sound of kick drums and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all for it. No. Cool. <laughs> Dave, Neil, thanks so much. Tape Notes is brought to you by In The Woods. If you're interested in joining us this year at the festival in September, head to the website, inthewoodsfestival.co.uk and get yourself a ticket. You can follow In The Woods on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, plus check out the Barn Sessions on YouTube. If you've enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review, tell your friends and make sure you're subscribed so you can enjoy the latest episodes when they're released. Until next time, I'm John Kennedy. Thanks for listening.